0: Let's pray as we stand. Father, as we come to your word now, it is our desire that we would uh, hear you teach us. You promise, one of your many, many wonderful promises is that um, you will be our teacher. And so we ask that that would happen. Will you uh, sharpen our minds? Will you grant us uh, appropriate um, uh, questions, uh, uh, critical thinking? But will you also, at the same time, grant us uh, to really grasp uh, the heart of Jesus' trustworthiness? Uh, So do whatever it takes in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, to focus our attention uh, and to focus our hearts upon Christ. Um, Address the questions that we have. Address the issues we're facing. You know them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, So... uh, we're going to focus on the gospel reading this morning. How'd how, how did, how did, how did it go for you? How's it working? Um, I think it's really odd. I think it's a very, very strange um, reading. And it's strange when you just read it just like that. You know, foxes have holes, leave the dead to bury their own dead, that kind of thing. Like it's weird just on the surface, but it's stranger in the context. Um, if you were here last week, uh, Josh preached a very, very helpful sermon on the three paragraphs that come before this. And there are three paragraphs that talk about Jesus' healing. So, and they're, they're fantastic. So, first, a leper comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, will you heal me? And Jesus immediately responds, Absolutely, reaches out his hands, touches the leper, leper's healed. Fantastic. And then a centurion comes up to Jesus the enemy of Israel comes up to Jesus and says, will you heal my servant? And Jesus doesn't hesitate, absolutely uh, heals the servant on the spot. And then Jesus goes over to Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law is ill, and nobody even asks Jesus. He just takes the initiative and heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Fantastic. And as you read those stories, there's kind of a, a, a rhythm of kindness that runs through those three Uh, stories, and then you get this. And just kind of let the rhythm of Jesus's kindness roll into this passage, and it's a little bit interesting. So Jesus is about ready to board a ferry to cross the Sea of Galilee, and a scribe, this academic, comes up to Jesus and, and says, Jesus, can I come too? And Jesus responds, you know, just like you expect. And he says, absolutely, hop on, there's plenty of room except that's not what he says, right? He responds to this guy and he says, sure, you can come along if you want to be homeless. <laughs> I mean, that's weird, right? And then, it's, and then it gets worse. So a disciple, somebody who's closer to Jesus than the academic comes up to him and says, Jesus, um, I'm, just, I'm not gonna go with you on this trip, I'll catch you on the next trip, I need to go to my dad's funeral. And Jesus says, in so many words, "This boat's not waiting for your dad's funeral. You should neither follow me now." And I want to say, Jesus, at least you need a better PR representative. <laughs> like, what in the world are you thinking? I, and and part of me wants to say, "Oof, I want Josh's passage last week. You know, I want, I want, I want, I want nice Jesus. I want heal. I want more healing stories." What are you thinking, Jesus, and what are you doing here? Now, if you go back to last week's sermon, which you should should listen to, um, at the end of Josh's sermon, he pointed out something very important. He pointed out that when Jesus heals, there's also a sober side to Jesus' healings. Because Josh pointed out, and it's in the text, that Jesus heals fundamentally on the basis of his own death. That is, Jesus healed at great personal cost. And Jesus says, in so many words, in this passage, it's that rhythm of costliness that rolls right into our passage this morning. And Jesus says, in so many words, I gave everything to heal you. And now, will you give everything in following me? That's the issue we need to uncover and wrestle with. And we're going to do that by looking at two questions. First of all, why is it so costly to follow Jesus? Why is he so demanding on these guys? That's the first question. And the second question is, is it worth it? All right. First of all, why is Jesus so demanding on these guys? We're going to take the stories in reverse order. Look at verse 21. This is the more offensive of the two interactions. Um, The disciple comes to Jesus and says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus responds, follow me. And let the dead bury their own dead. Now, like I said, as offensive as that sounds... It's worse in its cultural context, because uh, in that situation, in that context, in that cultural scenario, um, honoring your father was just sacrosanct. You weren't, you couldn't, not honor your father. That was true societally, but it was also true religiously. So, if, if you look at the kind of religion of the time, you were, you were allowed. Well, honoring your father pretty much trumped every other religious duty. Now, I should point out that there's some reason to think that this guy's father might not actually be dead yet. Okay, so it might have been, there's the, the, the wording is such that it could be understood to mean that the father hadn't died yet, it wasn't that the funeral was imminent, it was just that he was hitting retirement age, and this guy's saying, Jesus, uh, this season of my life isn't a helpful one for following you right now. I'm going to wait until my father... Uh, until I no longer have to look after my father, and then I'll come and follow you. So that might be what's going on. But even if that's the case, I'm not sure it really lessens the issue. It's still profoundly radical what Jesus is claiming here. Because what he's saying is, he says, listen, I am more important than your highest religious duty. I am more important, says Jesus, than your father. And therefore, I'm more important than your family. Nothing, Jesus says here, is more important than following me, so follow me now. And it seems to me that either Jesus is some sort of megalomaniac, or there's something very, very important going on here. Now, let me try to go a little bit deeper here. If you read through the Gospels, the people who meet Jesus and then reject Jesus... Very often, they are not the kind of obviously immoral, notorious sinners. Very often, the people who meet Jesus and ultimately reject him are people who are ostensibly, have their life plausibly together. However, what happens is that people who reject Jesus, usually, they, in their hearts, they're taking some good thing in their life and making it the main thing in life, and according to Jesus, and this is consistent, according to Jesus, that is a terminal spiritual illness that he wants to heal. Um, David Foster Wallace makes this point very, very powerfully. David Foster Wallace was a, was a writer, not a Christian, but he saw this dynamic uh, very, very clearly. I've used this quote before, but I think it's worth uh, hearing again. Uh, he, he, this is part of a speech he gave at a university graduation. He said this, He said, you get to consciously decide what it is that means the most to you. You get to to decide what to worship. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, whatever that might be, is that pretty much anything else that you worship will end up eating you alive. If you worship money and things, if that, if that is where you tap real spiritual meaning in life, then you will never have enough of it. You will never feel that you have enough. That's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel guilty and ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid. Worship your intellect, and you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. Now, like I said, Wallace is not a Christian, and yet he sees this dynamic Working very very clearly so he says listen all of us have to find meaning in life and whatever it is that you use to give you meaning Whatever it is you put first in your life That's the thing you worship and he argues that if you end up worshiping the wrong thing it will kill you It'll eat you alive. It's a terminal spiritual illness Now Jesus agrees And he his aim here is to heal that illness In fact, if you look at verse 22, when Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, there's very good reason to think that what he's saying here is, let the spiritually dead do the thing that they're going to do. They're living for something that will end up killing them from the inside out. But just, they're going to do what they're going to do. But he says to the disciples, but you live differently. Now, all of this begins to explain why it is that Jesus is so severe. He's not being cruel. He's not being hard hearted here. His aim is compassion. -er -er Earlier, I said, I want another healing story. The thing is, there's a very real way in which this is a healing story. Jesus is aiming to heal the heart. What it is that we love the most. Let me try to explain this just a little bit more. Um, Some of you have read A.W. Tozer, Tozer is a Christian. And uh, he explains the same dynamic, but he explains it in Christian terms. Um, let me read this to you. And please forgive the gender pronouns. Tozer's old. Um, and he says this. He's talking about how God originally designed us. And he says this. In the deep heart of humanity, there is a shrine where no one but God is worthy to come. Within humanity was meant to be God, and outside him, Are a thousand gifts which God had showered upon him. But sin has introduced complications and has made those very gifts of God a potential source of ruin to the soul. God was forced out of his central shrine and things were allowed to enter. So within the human heart, things have taken over. Men have now by nature no peace within their hearts, for God is crowned there no longer. Now, like I said, uh, Tozer is making the exact same point that Wallace is making. He's just making it from a Christian perspective. He says, We're made for God, we're made to be the shrine or the temple of God. But the problem is, every one of us. Uh, takes God out of that central place and instead we, re- we try to fill that place with, with good things, good things that just aren't meant to be the main thing. And when that happens, we're never ultimately satisfied. We're always restless. Wallace's terms, you'll die a thousand deaths before they finally plant you. Okay, back to the story, because that's what this disciple is doing. I mean, was his father a wonderful gift? Yeah, probably. I assume so. But the disciple had made honoring his father a higher priority than than following Jesus. And whenever Jesus' followers do that, there always comes a point when Jesus comes to us and he holds out his hand and he says, listen, you're going to need to surrender that to me. I am to be first in your life. You were made to be my temple. And it's as if Jesus says, I love you too much to allow competitors, even when we're talking about things as wonderful as your own family. Now, let me pause there and and turn it on us. Let me ask you a question. If you're a Jesus follower, have you ever experienced Jesus saying that to you? I don't mean a voice in your head, but you know what I mean, don't you? It's a normal part of the Christian life. Now, the same sort of thing is happening in the first story. So verse 19, the scribe comes up to Jesus, says, "Uh, I want to follow you wherever you go. And and the important thing to realize about the scribe, usually the scribes were were, uh, in tension with Jesus, but this one apparently is not. But the scribes had held a pretty high status within the society. They lived a plausibly comfortable life. They had a good gig. And Jesus' response challenges that comfort. And he says, Listen, comfort, home, financial security, as good as all of those things are, and as much as God enjoys giving those things to us, Jesus says, they are not to be your priority. And they won't be the priority, the fundamental priority of any Jesus follower. And so Jesus says, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Do you want to ride on that ship? One of the things that I appreciate about Jesus, I don't know, you can see if you agree with this. You can't, you can't accuse him of bait and switch, you know? Like, he's pretty straightforward. He's like, here it is. There it is. You want to play? Now, that explains why Jesus is so demanding, why the cost is so high. Jesus demands everything because he needs to be the center of our lives. He thinks we were designed for that. The question now then, that begs the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to surrender everything to Christ? Well, um, I think verse 23 is one of the most surprising verses in the whole passage because um, after Jesus said these things, he got into the boat and somebody followed him. Like, why would you follow this guy after he says something like this? Well, Look back at verse 20. This is important. Do you notice that when Jesus responds to the scribe, it's a little bit different. Did you catch that? When he responds to the scribe, he doesn't primarily talk about the cost required of the disciple. He implies that, but he actually points the scribe to the cost that Jesus himself pays. Look at verse 20. He says, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, that's how Jesus referred to himself, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, my question is, why does Jesus highlight his own sacrifice here? Now, this is very important. The reason Jesus does that is because he's a good leader. Because Jesus never asks us to do something that he has not already done. He never asks us to give up what it is that he has not already given up. And therefore, to answer the question, is it worth it to follow Jesus, we can change it first and ask the question, was it worth it for Jesus? Was it worth it for Jesus, given that everything he gave up? Now, just follow that line of thought for a minute. Um, You realize that here Jesus demands that his followers give up home and comfort as a first priority, and family as a first priority. It's important to realize that Jesus gave up both those things when he came to us. What do I mean? Do you remember two weeks ago was Trinity Sunday? And we talked about how God eternally exists, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they they have existed from all eternity past in a perfectly fulfilling relationship of love with one another. Now, the Bible says that when God the Son became human in the person of Jesus Christ, there's a deep and profound way in which Jesus chose to give up many of the glories or the prerogatives of glory that he knew from all eternity past. That is, he gave up in a real way his home. And not only did he give up his home, he gave up in a real way his father, at least for a moment. Do you remember when Jesus was dying on the cross? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that is the only time that we ever hear Jesus speak to God without using the word Father. Now, why is that important? It's important because Jesus came and he sacrificed an infinite amount in order to come and, so to speak, switch places with us. So he gave up, for a time, his home and his father. He gave up his home in order that he might give us an eternal home. He gave up his father in order that he might give us a father that we would never lose and that we were designed for. A father who never falls victim to the many weaknesses that your own father does. Now, in the logic of being a Jesus follower if Jesus gave up everything for me, then it makes sense for Jesus to ask us to give up all for him. But that still hasn't answered the question. The question is, was it worth it for Jesus? Given that sacrifice, was it worth it? Well, just just think about this. Friends, do you think Jesus regrets the cross? You know beforehand, he didn't really want to go, right? Remember the garden? Jesus says, Father, if this cup can, if there's another way, if this cup can pass from me, please, that'd be great. But He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus chose to put God as the first priority in his life, precisely as he was facing, becoming infinitely homeless, and infinitely cut off from his Father at the cross. And nevertheless, he says, your will, not my will. But Given the magnitude of that sacrifice, does he regret it now? Friends, it was his path to glory. It was his path to infinite glory. And according to Jesus, the whole way the system works is that his path is our path. We get the benefits that he purchased, which means if it was worth it for him, it will certainly be worth it for us. And I suppose it's not even... I mean, it sort of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, think about uh, David Foster Wallace. He's right. We have to live for something. Now, if that's true, why not live for something that lasts forever? Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, even if you're not a Jesus follower, wouldn't it be great if you could live for something that lasts forever? Because we can live for a comfortable life. And even if we get it, although it's very hard to actually grasp it. But even if we get it, it won't last forever. It won't. And we can live for our family. And even if you get a good one, which, keep in mind, they're harder to come by than you might imagine. Even if you get a good one, they won't last forever. If you have to live for something, why not live for the one who who died for you and gave up everything for you and then gained everything for you and who defeated death. That's the heart of the logic of discipleship. God gave his life in Jesus Christ so that we could have a life that could never be lost. And that's why it makes sense. That's why it's worth it. Um, There's a guy called Jim Elliott. He said this famously. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And the thing, one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that the payoff for a believer is not just after death. I'm not just talking about the afterlife. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is teaching pretty much the same thing as this, and the disciples ask the same question that we're asking, and they say, hey, Jesus, we've given up everything. Is there a payoff? And Jesus says this. He says, I tell you the truth, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields or or for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them persecutions, no bait and switch, in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Now, all this puts before us a a massive big question, right? Um, For some of us, we're just wrestling with whether or not to follow Jesus. And if that's where you're at, then this passage says something very, very bold. Jesus is asking you to do something very, very courageous. He's saying in so many words, he says, listen, step into my boat, trust me with your life. It will cost you everything, and I will give you everything, and you will not regret it. And there's others of us who have been following Jesus for a long time. And some of us who have been following Jesus for a long time are actually right now in the midst of feeling the pain of sacrifice. And the question, if that's where you're at, the question that is up for you is, Jesus, is it worth it? Can I trust you? Are you going to see me through? Because right now, if I'm honest, it looks bleak and dark ahead of me. And if that's you, then Jesus also asks you to do something very, very courageous. He asks you in your soul to take your eyes for a moment off the pain, not minimizing it for a second, but take your eyes for a moment off the pain and set your eyes upon Jesus Christ. Look at his sacrifice. Look at the bleak darkness that he endured. And then look at his resurrection and his glory. And as you look at his resurrection and his glory, know this, if you belong to Jesus, that is how your story ends. So play the long game. Don't play the short game. Play the long game. Don't lose heart. You've given up home. You've given up family. You've given up things that are deeply important to you. But friends, Christ is your home. And God is your father. And you are no fool to give up what you cannot keep in order to gain what you cannot lose. And even right now, Jesus wants to come and encourage you because he loves you. He's not asking you to go anywhere that he hasn't already been. He's with you now. He is right now healing your soul from the inside out. He's taking these other things that we grasp onto. Everybody does it, and everybody must be healed from it. He's taking those things, and he's saying, hand them to me, and I will give you myself, and I will satisfy you more than you can right now imagine. So trust me. He's healing your soul. This is the story of your redemption. And as he does that, and in those times where you're not sure that you can trust him and that this process is safe, then remember this. This comes from Tozer. And Tozer wrote this precisely when he was in the midst. For a variety of reasons, he felt like he had to entrust his daughter to Jesus in a way that he did not want to do. But he wrote this, he said, We are often hindered from giving up our treasures to the Lord out of fear for their safety. This is especially true when those treasures are loved relatives and friends and family. But we need have no such fears. Our Lord came not to destroy, He came to save. And everything is safe which we commit to Him, and nothing is really safe which is not so committed. So friends, look at Jesus. Surrender everything to him. And sometimes it'll feel like you're losing everything, but you will ultimately lose nothing. You will gain everything, and you will rejoice. Amen.